I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. This, of course, is Palm Sunday, and we understand the significance of it in relation to the final week of Jesus' life. Now, there are four Gospels we know that tell us about the things concerning Jesus and his earthly ministry. Of those four Gospels, there are really only ten things that all four of them refer to. We can't really count the first thing that they have in common, and that is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But following the beginning, if if, uh, we didn't have the ministry of Jesus here on the earth, we wouldn't have anything to write about in the Gospels or to, to learn about from them. But from that point, there are only ten things that all four Gospels relate or tell us about. Seven of those have to do with the last week of Jesus' life. The time that he spent in Jerusalem, the action that was taken against him on the way to the cross, and so forth. And his resurrection, that's included as well. But the three that are not taking place or didn't take place in the last week of Jesus' life are the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on the water, and then the last one is Peter's confession. Now, you remember, we usually read it from Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 16, where they were at a certain place where people were heavily involved in idol worship. And Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And you may remember that uh, Peter replied, saying, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist reincarnated. Some people have other ideas according to different prophets. But then Jesus turned it around and said, well, who do you say I am? Now, folks, that question perplexed me for a long time because I thought that Jesus commissioned his disciples to go and he delivered to them, gave them authority over sickness and disease and to cast out devils and such. I thought he did that for many years, for many years. I thought that he did that to give them a platform to tell everybody that Jesus was the Messiah. But if that were the case, why is he questioning the disciples? Who do you say I am? Their response should have been something if, if it happened and, and worked the way that I supposed that it did, that they were out telling everybody that the Messiah has come and so forth. Then their, quest, their response to his question would simply have been something like, well, we're, we know you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, just like you told us. But that's not what happened. Peter does refer to that, and he does reveal that. He said, we believe that you're the Christ. When Jesus said, who do you say I am? Peter answered for the group and said, you're the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, the rest of that story tells us, or following that story, it tells us that Jesus began to plainly teach, not in parables, not keeping anything hidden, but plainly teach them, He told them and showed them how that he was going to Jerusalem, would be crucified and killed, and raised again the third day. One of the things that the Bible does tell us in all four Gospels is Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem as king, king of the earth. I don't want to make a lot of comments this morning. I'm going to read a lot of scripture. 
and let the Bibles talk for itself on, on uh, uh, these issues. So let's do that. Did you find Mark chapter 11 yet? Let's start in verse 1. And when they came nigh unto Jerusalem unto Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent forth two of his disciples and said unto them, Go your way into the village over against you. And as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied whereupon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any say unto you, Why do you this? Say that the Lord has need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loosed him. And certain of them stood there and said unto them, What do ye loosing this colt? And they said unto him, Even as Jesus commanded, and they let them go. Now let me, uh, let me make a couple of comments here to kind of put things in context. We started with Mark because Mark was the first of the Gospels that was written. Now who is this Mark? Well, he's called John Mark in the book of Acts. He was a nephew, apparently, to Barnabas. And he went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. But you may recall things got too tough for him. He turned around and left. Well, that became a real issue for Paul because when the time came to go on the second missionary journey, Barnabas, his uncle, said, well, let's take John Mark with us again. And Paul wouldn't have it. He had his one chance. He failed. He turned back. It was too hard, so that's it for him. And the contention became so sharp between Paul and Barnabas that they separated. They no longer went together and worked in the ministry. ministry. We do know what happened to John Mark after Paul and Barnabas separated. He wound up pairing up with Peter and was with Peter's company according to historical documents, church documents, early church history stuff. He, he spent many years with Peter in his earthly ministry. Now if John Mark, and again like I said this was the first one that was written the first of the Gospels, the first of any of the letters that was written to the church. John Mark has only one source of information, and that's Peter. So the book of Mark is primarily Mark relating to the teaching that he heard from Peter. It's almost like this is a letter from Peter to the church about the time that he was with Jesus. And so this was, would have been the result of or an example of the preachings and the teachings of Peter on the earth as he was in his ministry going to the places God directed him. So we'll pick up the story here in verse 7. It said, And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him and sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches of the trees and strode them in the way. And they that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of, of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, folks, I want you to, to turn with me. We're coming back to Mark. Matter of fact, don't even turn. Let me just read it to you. From Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We know this verse is one of the Christmas scriptures. For unto us a child is born, unto us the son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But verse 7 is what I want you to see. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now what that's telling us is just as God had promised David because he was a man after his own heart, even though he messed up, even though he did some terrible things in uh, certain segments of his life. The Bible tells us that God promised that the Messiah would come from the house of David. So when people are crying out to thou son of David during Jesus' earthly ministry, they're recognizing that Jesus is performing as the Messiah was prophesied. And so when they're saying Hosanna to the king, Hosanna to the uh, throne of David, different things like that, they're acknowledging that they believe he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah. Now let me go back to Mark chapter 11 and, and pick up the story where we left it. Verse 11, and Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Now let's look at Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Matthew was the second of the gospels that were written in uh, the chronology of these things. But it was written some 15 years later, we suppose, so there was a, a big time gap in between there. Now, Matthew is taking a different approach. Matthew was one of the 12. He was a, a, a tax collector that Jesus enlisted to follow him and become part of his disciples group. Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, is more of, a, of an apologetic writing than any of the rest of the, the gospels. And what I mean by that is he's trying to prove the case. And there's a lot of ways, and his gospel is written primarily to the Jews. He's proving through lineage, through fulfillment of prophecy, using any and every tool that he has as directed by the Holy Ghost. He tries to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, and he does a masterful job. But as I said, he, all the four gospels relate the entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So let's start in verse 1 and see Matthew's account. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, <clears throat> saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if any man say aught to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion... Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. Now let me refer back to the scripture that it talks about. That's Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Let me read it to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, folks, please understand that when they say these things and bring about the fulfillment of prophecy, these are things that God has planned. These are things that God will do. There's a lot of things that God can't do in our life unless we ask him to. 
There's a lot of things that he can't get involved in our lives or bring his blessing to pass in our lives unless we stand in faith and take hold of his word and so forth. But there are some things that God has prophesied. Well, everything God has prophesied, it is going to happen. It doesn't matter whether we believe it or not. It doesn't matter whether or not we try to change things. When God says something is, it is. When God says something will be, it will be. Now, he doesn't usurp man's will. He could never usurp man's will. But just like providing the donkey and the, the foal, Jesus says in, in almost every case, Jesus said, if anybody asks you about it, just say, I need it. Now, folks, how would that work today? <clears throat> Let me just take your car and tell you the Lord needs it. Thank God he's exalted his word above his name. Verse 6 again, Matthew 21. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the ass and the colt and put, them on, put on them their clothes. And they set him thereupon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. Now, how many people is this? The Bible talks about the 5,000 as being a multitude. This says very great multitude. Does that mean it was more than 5,000? In fact, the feeding of the 5,000 tells us that there were 5,000 men. It doesn't tell us about women and children. So the size of that crowd that Jesus multiplies the food for might be 15,000, 20,000 people. Here's a very great multitude. It makes it seem that the whole city is involved, which well they may have been. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. That's messianic terminology. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth and of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. I want you to notice a big part of Palm Sunday was the healing work of God. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And, in, and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and he lodged there. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Let's see Luke's account of this. Beginning in verse 28, it said, And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, at the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereupon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you lose him? Thus shall you say unto him, because the Lord has need of him. 
And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Now, folks, let me interrupt the story here for just a moment. Concerning what you have, concerning yours and my material possessions, whose is it? Is it ours? Well, I think some of you expected me to pose a trick question. <laughs> because whatever you have is yours. Even what God gives to you is yours. It's yours to do with what you will. So the real important question, the most important question in this to me, is not whose is what we have, but rather will we allow the Lord to use what he needs. That was the rich young ruler's dilemma. You remember? Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Master, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you know what the law says. Keep the law. He mentions certain ones. And the rich young ruler responds and says, all these I've kept from my youth up. Then Jesus said, one thing you lack. Now, folks, if there's only one thing you're missing, you're doing good. He said, there's one thing you lack. He said, sell what you have and give to the poor that you might have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The problem is not what he has. He identifies that it's the blessing of, the, of obedience to the law that's brought into his hands everything that he owns. Jesus loved the guy before he ever did anything. He loved him for being concerned about and uh, inquisitive about entering into the kingdom of heaven. His problem was that he was covetous, however. He would not let his material possessions be used by Jesus in the way that he said. God doesn't have a problem with you having. He doesn't have a problem with you having a lot. If he has a problem with anything, it would be just like with the rich young ruler. You cons considering what you have as yours and yours alone, not available for his use. Jesus tells the disciples how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples are astonished. In fact, it says in the scripture, his, his disciples were astonished without measure. Now, the reason they were astonished beyond measure is because they understood the blessing of Abraham included material possessions. Now, folks, if God wanted more for his servants under the old covenant than he wants for his children under the new covenant, then there's no possible way that we could have a better covenant like the Bible says. Now, some people will say, yeah, but now we have salvation. They couldn't have salvation. We've got redemption by the blood of Jesus. Well, they had that too as soon as Jesus did it. Some people are willing to make a trade and spiritualize everything that we're supposed to have or everything that we do have. Well, folks, I, by spiritualize, if we mean by that that we judge things according to the truth of the word, then I'm all for spiritualizing everything. But if we mean by that, we'll just take the unseen things and forfeit the things that are seen on the earth that the Bible says Jesus paid for. I'm not into that. If Jesus bought and paid for healing with his blood, which he did, then how in the world could it not be the will of God for us to take hold of it? 
how in the world could we be pleasing to God by saying some stupid thing about worshiping God in the middle of our suffering? I was listening to a song that my daughter was, uh, she had her, um, oh, what do you call those boxes that you talk to? Alexa. She's got an Alexa. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just so techy, it's just not even funny, right? Well, she was listening to some Christian music, and this song came on. You may have heard it, and I don't know the name of it. Beautiful song. Beautiful melody, at least. But it came on, and it's talking about what if sickness and disease and tragedy and destruction is God's mercy in disguise? You heard the song? I'm sorry, I don't know the name of it. And, and whoever performs it has a beautiful voice. And the lyrics, I mean, the, um, the melody, the music is just terrific. But the words are junk. I mean, why don't we hear some song where somebody comes up and says, what if the word is true? What if we've been duped by Satan? into thinking God brings bad things. But really, the word is true. I don't know. Maybe that's not commercially viable. I don't know. But I think we're coming to a place in the last days. Certainly, the Bible says the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. I'm not going to care anything about that after the rapture, are you? Well, then in order for the wealth of the wicked, which is laid up for the just, to be used of the Lord, it's got to be now in the church age. And I think that we're going to see more and more the Lord dealing with us and preparing our hearts to allow what we have to be used. I read an article just yesterday that there are just as many people, 23% of America identifies with having no religion as those that identify as being Catholic or evangelical. Well, folks, if that's the way things are going, then we're coming to the place where the end of days is going to be just like the days of the early church. I believe that's a big part of what's going to bring about the glory of the Lord being seen. I believe it's going to bring about a in big part or be a big part of healing flowing like a river and salvation rising as the tide. I believe we're coming to a place in a day where the power of God will be seen on the earth through the church like it hasn't been seen since the early days recorded in the book of Acts. Well, I'm getting a little off track here, so let me get back. Verse 35, Luke 19. And they brought him to Jesus and cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto them, Master, rebuke thy disciples. 
And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Now let's come to the last one. John chapter 11. The last gospel account. So we've got Mark that was written early on. Basically Peter's eyewitness account of what took place in Jesus' ministry. We've got Matthew that comes some 10 or 12, maybe 15 years later. That's an apologetic to the Jewish people. To try to prove to them that Jesus is the Christ or is the Messiah. Then we've got Luke. Luke's part of Paul's company. So there's going to be some great period of time, at least 10 or 12 years, maybe even more, before, uh, uh, between Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. Now here's John that writes his gospel some 60 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. We don't know how much time there was between the gospel of John and the revelation. He may very well have received the revelation, what we know of as the book of Revelation. That may have happened before the Lord moved on him to write the gospel that bears his name. But either way, these were written within a couple of years of each other. Again, as I said, some 60, maybe 65 years after Jesus went to the cross. Now, John, as his gospel does in so many ways, either gives us new insight new information about things that the, that the other gospel writers did not write about. And you can imagine the great advantage John would have had. He's read Matthew's gospel. He's read Mark's gospel. He's read Luke's gospel. He knows things that have happened that he was a party to, an eyewitness to, that the others may not have known. There weren't many things that Peter, uh, that John was involved in with Jesus as being a part of his inner circle. Peter was part of that inner circle too. So there weren't many things that we would expect for John to know that Peter didn't know or John to experience that Peter didn't experience. But certainly that would have been the case for Matthew and, uh, I'm sorry, for Mark and for Luke. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. It certainly would have been the case for Luke. And so when John tells us the things that happened in Jesus' ministry, he seems to be tying up loose ends or filling, the, in, filling in the gaps in a lot of ways. And one of the things that he reveals to us is the importance of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, these are things that the other gospel writers don't give any significance to whatsoever. How could you not give significance to a raising of, of somebody from the dead after four days? And it may not have even been that they didn't know, the other gospel writers didn't know about it. It may simply have been a matter of the Holy Ghost directing them to write specific things, not just everything. So Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. We'll pick up in verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. How could you not believe a guy who just raised somebody from the dead like that? And now this wasn't the only person Jesus raised from the dead. You remember he, he interrupted a funeral procession once and touched the coffin and the guy lived. The guy was restored to his mother, which indicates he was a young man. There were other raisings of the dead. There were other situations that were similar in nature. But this had a, a massive impact 
on Jesus' ministry and those particularly in Jerusalem. Many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? What are we going to do about this? For this man doeth many miracles. What a problem to have on your hands. What are we going to do? This guy keeps doing miracles, operating in the power of God. How are we going to fix this? Idiots. If we leave him thus alone, all men will believe on him. What a tragedy that would be, right? And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. The thing that pushed the Pharisees over the edge was when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That was the point where they felt like they could not control how many people followed Jesus so they concluded that they've got to get rid of him. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness unto a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? Will he come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. Chapter 12. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. You know, sometimes this just, I, I just have to stop and catch myself and, and think, this is not a fairy tale. This stuff really happened. How could anybody deny sitting at, at the table with Lazarus, the guy that was raised from the dead, and Jesus, who had to have been operating by the power of God? How can you raise the dead without that? And yet that just made some people more against him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard very costly and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then came one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him and said, why was, this, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said not because he cared for the poor but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Not everybody that talks about giving to the poor is of the right motive folks this he said not because he cared for the poor but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein then said Jesus let her alone against the day of my burying has she kept this for the poor always you have with you but me you have not always much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there 
And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that, that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. Let's not just kill the guy doing the work of God. Let's kill the people that the work of God is done for. Because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Boy, that's a shock. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to, to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he found a young ass, sat up thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. Now, I think this is instructive to us because it's telling us even his disciples, maybe especially his disciples, were not Old Testament scholars. And they didn't recognize the fulfilling of a lot of prophecies until much later after Jesus was already resurrected from the dead. Well, that may be so, but that does not do away with the fact that the people are crying Hosanna to the king. So there had to be some general working knowledge of prophecy, at least some of the prophecies that were fulfilled as Jesus went where he went and did what he did. But John admits, and I think we can recognize his honesty, he admits we didn't know everything that was going on while it was happening. Verse 17, the people therefore that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead bear record. In other words, you can't keep this quiet. There's too many people that have seen the truth and seen the miracles that took place. For this cause, the people also met him for that they heard that he had done this miracle. In other words, the, the story getting out about Lazarus being raised from the dead has brought other people to see Jesus who did not know about the story beforehand. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how you prevail nothing? Behold, the whole world has gone after him. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same set came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and again Andrew told, and Philip told Jesus. And Jesus answered them and said, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause I came unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered, and others said an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And, if I, be, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Thus he said, signifying what death he should die. 
when these guys come to Philip, and Philip tells Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip go together with Jesus, saying, people are looking for you. Notice Jesus didn't address their request. But it tells us about Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Now, why is that? Well, when these people say, say come to Philip, and Philip goes to Andrew, when they come to him, they're wanting to see him that did these mighty works. There's an element of the expectation of a show that apparently increases after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus points to how you really need to see him. Not just in the flesh, but on the cross. And that's why he goes into this about the hour has come. Remember, Jesus has clearly taught them. The disciples should have no doubt. They do. They wind up doubting to the point where Jesus upbraids them for the hardness of heart and their unbelief. But there should be no reason for them to doubt because Jesus has plainly told them, here's why I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem to be taken captive, to be killed, and to rise again the third day. Now, maybe that was too much for them to accept. I really kind of hate to take sides with them because Jesus upbraided them for the hardness of heart. And the Bible says faith comes by hearing and he told them plainly what was coming. And that was he wanted them to believe. But they didn't. Verse 34, the people answered him, we have heard out of the law that Christ abides forever. And how sayest thou, this son of man must be lifted up. Who is this son of man? Then Jesus said unto them, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. Jesus said one thing after another that made them question what the Bible says about the Messiah in this case. Christ lives forever. How can you die if the Christ, if the Messiah, which we believe you are, is supposed to live forever? Now, folks, there's something about this that I think we can take specific notice of, and that is God's not obligated to fulfill your interpretation of the word. He'll honor his word. It's up to us to rightly divide it. It's up to us to rightly divide the word of truth. God is under no obligation to perform or to fulfill yours and my uh, fantasies about the word. He's not under any obligation whatsoever to fulfill what we think he should do. Or how he should do it. Thank God we have his word. Be careful about putting your own interpretation of the word. Verse 36. While you have light, believe in the light that you may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because as Isaiah said again, or in another place, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, 
that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. These things spake Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him, on Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Folks, we know that Jesus understood everything that was going to take place. We understood that he knew. We know that he knew because he taught the disciples plainly about going to Jerusalem, being taken captive by the Romans at the behest of the Jews, the Pharisees. We, knew that he, we know that he knew that he would be killed, suffer a terrible death on the cross, and be raised again from the third day. What did Jesus think when the whole city was praising him on Palm Sunday? I would imagine if I was one of the disciples, I would have looked around and said, Jesus, this is great. You've reached everybody. Everybody believes on you now, especially after that deal with Lazarus. Lazarus is a walking testimony of death not being as great as the power that Jesus is operating under which anybody in their right mind would have to conclude that had to be the power of God I mean if you didn't believe that it's just because you didn't want to there's nothing that could be used as any solid evidence to say that these things didn't happen and that's why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus both So on Palm Sunday, Jesus fulfills the prophecy, rides in on the foal, fulfilling what the Bible said in Zechariah. People put their coats and cloaks and everything in the way, cut down branches off the tree. John's the only one that tells us they were palm branches. What did Jesus think? The spreading of the garments and the showing branches and stuff in his way, those are all signs of submission. They're signs of their recognition, the people's recognition that this is the king. Remember, that was one of the things that the Jews used when they came to Pilate. They talked about Jesus being, claiming to be a king. And so that was Pilate's question. There's not, one, not any king except Caesar. So do you claim to be a king? And every time Jesus answered, he said something to the effect of, well, you say I am. You're asking me, so you must think that's a possibility. And then he said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were of this world, we'd fight. My disciples would fight. But that's not what I came to bring. You know the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus? It's right here in this last verse we read. John chapter 12, verse 43. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus knew full well that the people that are singing Hosanna today in six days are going to be shouting crucified. Him. 
One of the things about Jesus, one of the characteristics that we should develop is that he was as dead to censure as he was to praise. Jesus wasn't motivated or moved by people saying they were with him any more than he was motivated or moved by their censure of him or criticism of whatever. He knew what his goal was in life because he got that information from God. And because he knew what God had for him to do, he very simply did it, no matter what anybody thought. Jesus wasn't worried about losing a crowd. There are so many things that are going on in the world that we live in today. The transgender stuff, the, the notice nobody even talks about homosexuality anymore. It's all gender, gender identification. It's not a matter of homosexuality alone like it used to be, or even gay marriage. It's all about the LGBTQT, LMNOP, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> and what's amazing to me is the way the churches are being affected by it. There are threats being made against churches about losing their nonprofit status. Pastors are afraid to confront or deal with social issues because people might get upset and leave the church. If people leave the church, they certainly take their money with them, so that's a big consideration for a lot of churches and a lot of places. People are concerned in this modern time by what other people think about them rather than what God thinks about them. They're more concerned with offending people than they are offending God. I can't see that in Jesus, can you? One of the things that surprised me, and I think was a big part of what John was trying to do, writing as late as he did, bringing information to us that others didn't bring the story in john chapter 6 where jesus talks to them talks to the multitudes the crowds about eating his flesh and drinking his blood now obviously he was using that as symbolism he was using the symbols of the shedding of blood and the partaking of blood just like it was used on the day of atonement and just like it was used in the passover rituals and so forth he knew he was saying things that would offend people. He didn't try to keep from offending people. And in that, Jesus is my hero. Jesus simply let people determine for themselves what they believed about what he was saying. He didn't try to correct it. He didn't try to change it. He didn't try to soften the blow when the Bible says many left Jesus he just simply turned to the disciples and asked them, are you going to? There may be things that we don't understand about God's plan. There may be things, well, there are things, that we don't understand about his word like we would like to. But folks, the change that needs to be made is never on God's side. 
and the changes that need to be made are never on God's people's side if they're doing what God has directed them to do. You remember in uh, chapter 12, verse 13, I think it was, it said, John's the only one that tells us that they were palm branches that were cut down and thrown in the way of Jesus. Why did he specify that they were palm branches? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Now, folks, again, let me, well, I started to say emphasize. I don't know if that's the right way to say it or not. Let me remind you that John may well have gotten the revelation before he wrote his gospel. Now, the reason I make that distinction is because there's no way John could know anything about what was to come that's recorded in the book of Revelation without the Holy Spirit opening his eyes to it. But that's not true of his gospel. Of his gospel, he was there. The gospel is just simply relating things that he witnessed, things that he experienced. I'm of the opinion that John wrote the Revelation first. And one of the things that makes me think so, or suggest the possibility at least, is that John sees, just as he remembered the palm trees being cut down and put in the way of Jesus as he came into the temple or into the city. He's seen that before. which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and under the lamb and all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God saying amen Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? Where did they come from? Who are they and where did they come from? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them they shall hunger no more neither thirst any many in the church world think that the church will be raptured during the middle of the tribulation and it is the, the midway point of the tribulation when this great multitude is caught up into heaven and of our standing before God is because we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Not because any robes have been washed. It's mind-boggling to me how the same people that were singing Hosanna to the King, who were there because of the miracles, particularly, or certainly not the least of, which was Lazarus being raised from the dead. Folks, if you can raise somebody from the dead that's been dead four days, what power of the enemy can you not overcome? Now, that's the same power that says you and I have. I know we don't think so. I know that we're, because of the limitations of the flesh, 
Maybe it's that we're in the same category as the disciples. Jesus clearly and plainly taught them that he was going to be killed and raised again after three days. They didn't believe that, and he upbraided them for their hardness of heart and their unbelief. Maybe we're in the same place where we see that the Bible says that the same power Jesus had, the same resurrection power that brought him back to life, is available for us to use to destroy the works of the devil here on the earth. That's what he said when he appeared to the disciples. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. He said, I'm going back to the Father. I'll take care of things in heaven. You go into all the world. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Maybe we shouldn't give the disciples such a hard time for not believing Jesus when he told them clearly that he would be raised from the dead. And not one of them believed. It wasn't like they were split. It wasn't like it was a split decision. Not one. One of them believed. Maybe that's what God's looking for today. Just one that'll believe. Who are you looking to please? God or man? Who are you afraid of offending? God or man? Folks, God's word is set. Forever, O Lord, thy word is established in heaven. Everything God said is. Everything God said will be, will be. It's not possible for his word to fail. So the question is never about the word. The question is very simply, will we join in the fight to take hold of what the Bible says is ours? And then a second question, if you will join in the fight, how long will you stay in the fight? Those are really the only questions to be answered in this life. Jesus has made the sacrifice. He's made redemption a reality he's made righteousness an absolute and he's made faith the vehicle to take hold of everything that he has done what about you I believe that one of the reasons the Bible tells us about things getting worse and worse in these last days is for the same thing that Jesus said when he came to the earth. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. Now we know he, can bring, he came to bring peace to man with God. But he said of his time here on the earth, he said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to divide people. Not the kind of division that people talk about today. Not division between politics or race or beliefs but between those who accept him and those who reject him those are always going to be at odds but remember it's God's plan to bring the whole earth into the kingdom of God Jesus died for the sins of the world not the sins of one nation 
not the sins of one generation. He died for the sins of the world. So how in the world are we going to get people that are so diametrically opposed for any number of reasons? And here's what I mean by that. There's a lot of people that won't listen to the truth that we preach because of the politics that are involved. If they don't agree with our politics or if I say something political that offends them, then they shut off and won't hear the truth of the word. There are social issues, as we mentioned, the homosexuality thing, gay marriage stuff. There are some people that won't listen to us tell the truth of Jesus' sacrifice because we disagree with them or vice versa concerning social issues. How in the world are we going to breach those gaps? I see some people having homosexual churches thinking that's going to reach people that are involved in homosexuality. Well, what are they going to preach? Are they going to preach everything except what the Bible says on homosexuality? We've had people leave our church over a couple of years ago because of the election. So they've chosen not to hear the word because of my politics. So where are they going to go? They're going to go to a church that has the opposing politics point of view. Folks, I got to tell you, you'd be hard pressed to find a church that knows the word under those circumstances. How are we going to bridge those gaps? How are we going to bring people together again centered around the word when there are such glaring differences, such, such deep divides? Well, I'm simple enough to believe that it only, it only can be done the way that it was originally done. And that is with the power of God on display to such a degree that no matter whatever else somebody thinks, they can't deny that the power of God is real. That's what happened in the book of Acts. When the man at the beautiful gate was uh, healed, the lame man at the gate called Beautiful was healed by Peter and John. The Pharisees that took him captive and questioned them, same people that wanted to control the disciples, as the ones that wanted to control Jesus. They came to the conclusion that we cannot deny that a notable miracle has been done. Folks, that's the only way people are going to be reached. When they can't deny the word of God. When they can't deny the power of God on display. That's the only way that we're going to reach the world. And the only way we're going to reach the world is to be more concerned about doing God's will than man's will. The only way the power of God will be displayed is if and when we put God first Amen. and operate according to his plan instead of our own. When we seek the praise of God, 
more than the praise of men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice you made. You did it willingly. You understood the price that must be paid. You understood the pain and the suffering that went along with it. But you chose to fulfill the will of your Father more than the will of man or even more than your own will. Give us boldness, Lord, to speak your word. The boldness that comes from stretching forth your hand to heal. And we pray that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Give us signs and wonders, Father. Not so that we can entertain our crowd, but so that we can reach the world. We preach a gospel of power. In the name of Jesus. We prayed for signs and wonders for many, many years now, Lord. We know it's your will. We know it shall be done. We simply ask it to be done quickly and soon. I thank you, Father, that because of our prayers and because of what we believe, Healing shall flow like a river in and through this place. And salvation shall rise as the tide. Multitudes of people will come into the kingdom of God. And we will reap our part of the precious fruit of the earth. In the name of Jesus. And in the power of that name. We love you, Father. We thank you that your word is true. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, please. Let's just lift our hands and thank him. Worship our Heavenly Father for just a moment. We bless you, Lord. We thank you, Father. Holy Father. Holy Father. Holy Father. You are a holy father of a holy family. Made righteous by the blood of Jesus, your son. We trust you, Lord. We thank you for fulfilling your word. We thank you that your word is true and that our words come to pass. We bless you, Master. We bless you. Hallelujah. We thank you for revealing yourself to us, Father. More and more in these last days. Say it with me, folks. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. Amen.
God bless you. We love you. Thank you for being with us.